You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Episode 142, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. Today's guest is Dr. Matthew Moeller. He's a gastroenterologist, and he wrote the book, What It's Like to Become a Doctor. And he wrote this in response to the debates that were going on in 2013 with regards to the Affordable Care Act or the Obamacare, as you may remember. He had written an article for Caduceus, which then got picked up by Kevin M.D., and really got everywhere, Wall Street Journal and elsewhere, where he talked about what it's like to become a doctor and things that people needed to consider as far as lawmakers, uh, the state of healthcare, and what the real problems were. And obviously, if you listen to the show, you probably agree in some respects that a lot of the things that were used as justifications for things to the law really were either maybe not disingenuous, but certainly are ones that were not very helpful. And Dr. Mueller talks about those and addresses them in his paper, and then he just wrote this book to point out what it is to be a doctor, the training that's involved, and essentially the sacrifices and the mindset for physicians. Primarily, we'd go into it to take care of our patients, and other people may find that not true, that they're a more cynical view of physicians. Generally speaking, the number one satisfier for physicians, as I've mentioned in the show many, many times before, is your relationship with the patient. If you separate that, the farther you get away from that, people tend to be less satisfied with their job. And that's not surprising. If you feel that you're doing something just for money, it's really hard to do and maintain a level of excellence probably at doing it if you don't feel like you're providing any benefit or value to society. I think that's probably the case of most professions. And medicine is unique in that we have a personal relationship we get with patients, even if it's a brief one like mine in anesthesia, or if it's a long-term one like you're someone in primary care. This is a fun conversation. We're going to talk a lot about medicine, just a more broad picture, and also little personal anecdotes along the way. But before that, I'd like to introduce my sponsor of the show. Today it's story time, brought to you by locumstory.com. Today we'll be reading One Job, Two Job. One Job, Two Jobs. Red Blob, No Job. Elective Doc, Emergency Doc. Some in Overstock, Some in Out of Stock. This Doc is too abused. This Doc is underused. This Dog Can't Get Sick. Say, let's try a brand new trick. For all the docs about to cry, here's an idea you can try. Look into Locum 10's assignment. A really great option. You might find it. Don't forget Locum pays much better, and you can find assignments in any type of weather. With all this new info trapped up in your thinker, go to drpodcastnetwork.com slash locumstory and use your mouse to tinker. It's here you'll find the unbiased answers you're after, so you can decide if Locum Tenens is your next chapter. Well, that absolutely wins the award for my most favorite ad read of the year. If you want access to Dr. Moeller's writings, his book, which can be found at Amazon.com, you can find the show notes at theparadox.com slash 142. There you can get the links to all those and a little bio of Dr. Moeller himself. But without further ado, what it's like to become a doctor. Enjoy. 
Well, I'm here with my friend, Dr. Matt Moeller. He's a gastroenterologist from, who trained at St. Louis University for medical school, went to residency at the University of Michigan, did his fellowship, which is another three years at Henry Ford Hospital, uh, where he got his GI uh, training. So Matt, thanks so much for joining the show. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, well, I want to have you on for quite a while. So I'll hold up the book for those of you who are watching on the screen. So this is uh, the book you wrote a number of years ago now. It's been since like 2016 and things was published, but you wrote it, I guess the genesis of it started back in 2013. So it's called what it's like to become a doctor, the year by year journey from medical student to practicing physician. And in it, basically you just describe the training aspect, like, you know, what I did for high school and to get to college and then from college to medical school and sort of your journey. And then the second part of the book or last third of the book is probably on sort of the healthcare system and stuff. So let's talk a little bit about um, what, now, I know the genesis was the article that you wrote that kind of went blew up online. This is right around when Obamacare is being debated back in 2013. Why don't you describe sort of what that happened and sort of how this all sort of, I mean, you didn't, certainly didn't plan it, but writing a book initially, right? Yeah. So I was, you know, growing up, you know, I wanted to, you know, wanted to be a doctor all along. And, you know, I love science. I love taking care of patients and everything. And then as I progressed throughout training, you know, I became a fellow and Early on in fellowship, you know, we had the financial crisis back in 2008, and I started paying a little bit more attention, you know, had a young family, started caring about, you know, finances and how the economy works and getting kind of a grasp of the real world per se (laughs) for once after going through all these years of training. And um, so I started listening and reading some news and I learned about, you know, different ways doctors, you know, um, get compensated, for example, the sustainable growth rate through Medicare. And then I started hearing some of the news articles about, oh, doctors, you know, are these are very, you know, rich, well to do. They have a great life. And I'm sitting here in fellowship. I'm like, man, I got, you know, a quarter million dollars in debt. I got a couple (laughs) kids and I didn't I I didn't quite understand that. And then I specifically saw a video um, of President Obama at that time back in 2008 talking about, um, you know, oh, this vascular surgeon can make thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars by doing a um, foot amputation. I'm like, wait. So I started doing a little homework on that and reading about. It. I'm like, wait. According to the way compensation works, this doctor actually got paid less than a thousand dollars. So I'm like, wow. Based on you know economics and such, there's no other field in the world that where prices and charges don't really match up. And I started looking into it a little bit more and just started taking notes, doing some more research. And over a couple of years, started doing more notes and eventually got to um, an article that I wrote. And that's kind of where it all started. Yeah. Why don't you talk about, I mean, you wrote this article at probably, I imagine you wrote it sometime in February or January of 2013, right? It was a Mm -hmm. letter to lawmakers, right? So for those of us kind of look, taking it back in the time machine, that was eight years ago now as we're Mm -hmm. speaking, a little eight and a half years where Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, was being debated in Congress, and uh, that was one of the big mandates from the Obama presidency, right? He was going to you know, radically change health care, make it affordable, you know, you can keep your doctor, all those sorts of slogans and stuff went out. Um, and it was it barely passed the House, and then it easily passed the Senate, because I believe the Democrats had a very large majority in the Senate at that time. But, um, so this was, this was obviously a your sort of thoughts on things as they're debating this and the various things that are in the media, like, you know, the arguments for and against the, the plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So costs have gone up. You know, I think Obamacare, the genesis of that really started, you know, there's a little quick history here, you know, back in, you know, after World War II, 
employers start offering health insurance, mm-hmm. you know, for um, people to um, allow the, you know, affordability of health care. Then the HMO Act of 1973 really expanded HMOs and managed care overall. Um, universal health care was then proposed because we felt, you know, health care is a right, not a privilege. Everyone should get covered. The problem, though, that happened is that costs kept going up. Yeah. And the uninsured also kept going up. So the Affordable Care Act was an attempt to try to bring down costs and actually increase um, coverage for people. Unfortunately, you know, it, it had great intentions. You know, I think we, we want everyone to be covered. I think health care, you know, is a right. And I think everyone should be able to afford health care. But I think from a doctor's perspective, the way things, the, the way it was done may not have been optimal. And I think there could be better ways to go about it overall. Right. Well, I, you know, I think for someone who is interested in medicine or you, let's say you're, you're a physician, you're listening here and you're like, you know, my family really doesn't know what I did. Right. And yeah. so I think the first half of your book is really good. It sort of goes through all the things you have to do to be, go to medical school. And actually I like to, when I was reading, I'm like, these are all the things I've um, conveniently forgotten. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you'd ask most docs, like, yeah. would you go back to your first year residency or, uh, was usually first year of med school. And most people would rather jump into a, a swimming pool full of a uh, lemon juice and like razor yes. blades than to actually go back <laughs> and relive medical school. Right. I mean, yep. cause it was a pretty, it's hard. You didn't see things, you know, you're yep. studying all the time, all those sorts of things. And, um, so why did you talk about why you added that? So you obviously wrote the article. It went viral uh-huh. when it, and then, and then it spurned into this book yep. where you sort of describe what it is. What was your reason for putting this, um, for, I guess, having this sort of the journey in there as well, because it wasn't obviously fully in your paper or your, you know, sure. your letter, obviously. Yeah. So first of all, you know, I, I love medicine. I would do it all over again. Unfortunately, a lot of surveys show that a lot of doctors would not choose medicine right. again. Yeah. I actually really like it. The thing that I did though, the thing that I really had a passion for though, was studying the economics of medicine and how that worked. And the impetus towards that article was that I felt that lawmakers weren't listening to doctors on the front lines of medicine who actually practiced every day. Yeah. I felt they were listening to lawmakers who had been there, you know, two decades ago. They didn't really see the front line, the dirty work which went on. So I felt that I wanted to write a letter um, and then subsequently a book to try to get lawmakers' attention to say, hey, look, if we got a committee of doctors who are actively practicing from a wide you know, demographic all over the nation, and we all gave good input into ideas, we may come up with better solutions. Because as we know, with Obamacare, I mean, it, the intentions were great, but unfortunately, costs um, did continue to go up. So my intentions were really related to the ideas that I had in mind overall. The reason I talked about the first half of my book, I wanted to paint a clearer picture of what a doc went through. A lot of news articles talked about, oh, the rich doctors, you know, they have a very high salary. All those things are true. But if you look into some of the deeper details, such as starting your career late, such as the, the number of work hours you do in residency, which can be 80 hours plus per week. If you look at compounding interest, if you look at all those things, I kind of like numbers too. So I kind of wanted to elucidate and spell out some of those ideas in the first half of my book to, for people to get an idea that it's not all just roses and you know fancy cars and things like that. There was a lot of different work going into it. And I just wanted to kind of spell it out for, for the public to get, to get a better idea. Yeah, I think one of the interesting points you make in the book, you start talking about the difference between wealth and 
and mm-hmm. income, right? So mm-hmm. why don't you kind of go into that? Because I think it's an important concept when people try, you know, you can look at salaries and you say, oh my gosh, this guy makes, you know, half a million dollars or something like, so kind of break that down or $250,000, especially your primary care or even mm-hmm. 150, right? Break that down, what the difference is and why it matters. Sure. Yeah. If you think about, you know, big, you know, wealthy people like Warren Buffett, for example, he thinks the number one rule is all about compounding interest. So in medicine, you really start your career very late. I started at age 32. So if you're starting at age 32, let's say with $200,000 in debt, you're paying off that loan with after-tax money. And as you start making more and more income, you get taxed more on that. So you actually have less to pay down debt that you pay with after-tax dollars. So as doctors go through training, you know, they get paid very little in, you know, residency, they get paid nothing in medical school, very little in fellowship. And then as you go on, you become an attending physician, your income definitely does go up. But you are a little bit behind the eight ball there because of the tax burden, the loans and the lack of the ability to kind of save earlier on. Of course, people can save, you know, in different ways, but it's not the same as having, you know, very little debt and going from there. Um, so wealth is a little bit different. Wealth is kind of how much money you have overall, you know, in your savings account or in investments and such. So high income people may not be wealthy and vice versa. And I think docs are the classic example of those who may have high incomes, have that disposable income, but may not generate a lot of wealth due to the prior, you know, rules I talked about there. Yeah. And I think the point is, and we talked about this before in the show is that, uh, it takes a while to... To, to catch up, right? So mm-hmm. like it, you may have a high income, but it's going to take a while to catch up to the person who was making a, a third, but mm-hmm. because they hadn't been, they started 10, 12 years before, if they're, you know, doing, making the right financial decisions and whatnot, then they're mm-hmm. actually, it, it's hard for you to catch the, that person. I guess, you know, if you look at it from yep. an wealth standpoint, like we creation of actual assets and mm-hmm. capital. Yeah. There was actually a study done by Ben Brown, um, MD. He talked about, you know, a different profession, you know, making actually almost a quarter of the amount but starting at the age of your early 20s without any debt. And if you factor in the number of hours worked and then the tax burden throughout all those years and then compounding interest, a person can actually build more wealth starting um, you know, in their early 20s compared to someone starting in their mid-30s based on that. Now, again, I'm not trying to say you know, doctors do not have a comfortable income at all. What I'm trying to say is I'm just trying to point out some of the misconceptions you may see on the news outlets about, you know, doctors and being super wealthy and all those kinds of things. Well, and, you know, it also depends on what type, right? I mean, I think it's very easy. We know the difference, right, between specialties. Gastroenterologist makes a lot more than a regular internist, right? Yep. Uh, Or, you know, generally primary care, if you're not doing procedures, you don't make as much money in kind of the dumb way we pay ourselves in healthcare, right? I mean, anesthesia makes more than, I make more than my wife who's a pediatrician and it, And I think her job in some ways is harder than mine. (laughs) Maybe not as risky, but certainly uh, it's harder in some ways. Uh, Why don't you talk about, before we get into sort of solutions to problems, when you look at things that are driving people out of medicine or like what what are the things that are really causing problems? We've talked about this before in the show, but why don't you go over briefly like, you know, the stresses in medicine that cause people to to really struggle? Yeah, I think there's a lot of different, so financially overall, we kind of talked about that in depth overall, you know, the debt burden. You know, then you come out and you're paying a ton in debt, maybe two, three thousand dollars a month in your loans. You're getting taxed on that. So I think financially overall, you know, I think just socially, I mean, you're basically in medical school and residency all throughout your 20s. Yeah. You know, so overall that can cause that. Then there's the administrative burdens overall once you're a physician. There's a lot of different things. You know, people are evaluating you with patient satisfaction scores. Um, you get 
it's unlike other fields where you actually, um, you know, do you do a lot of things outside of work. You bring your laptops on vacations. You, you call a lot of patients after hours. You do a lot of things like that. And when you have a high demand like that with these constant issues coming up, it can create burnout. And some of my colleagues do experience that. So Yeah, and when I think that's especially difficult with your family life, right? right? Mm-hmm. Like you see people, they, you don't have that downtime. Even when you're on vacation or you've mm-hmm. got the weekend and stuff, there's still something out there. Now, I, in my profession, I don't have that as much because mm-hmm. I am sort of, not hourly, but certainly when I leave the OR, I don't have a whole lot of responsibility for patients, you know, who are mm-hmm. left, but most physicians, certainly a surgeon or someone who's a proceduralist like you, or even in some primary care, they have other things that are outstanding, you know, a CT scan or like a pathology report or something. And, mm-hmm. and you have to break the news or whatever and, and yep. deal with those sorts of things. And it never kind of, it doesn't ever go away and you can't leave your work. Yep. Yeah. In gastroenterology, we have a very good system where we're at now. We have coverage systems and all that stuff. But a lot of my colleagues who are in medicine, they don't necessarily have that, especially if they're in a more rural area. They may not have the setup to tackle all those lifestyle issues. And of course, we all chose to become a doctor for a reason. But I think, you know, especially if you look at, you know, the recent COVID I mean, any healthcare worker, from a nurse to a tech to anyone working in the hospital, a lot of them experience burnout, and we do have a lot of empathy for that overall, too. So there's that aspect. There's the physical aspect of lack of sleep. For example, COVID, obvious physical effects there, social and financial stuff overall. But those are all the challenges we face, and uh, I think that is why you see a lot of the surveys showing that many people would not become a physician again if they had to do it all over. Yeah. It's funny because I always, I think of that question because I, and I think, you know, I, the whole process to get to that point, I don't know that I enjoyed it too much, mm-hmm. but I would, I, but I do enjoy my job now and I enjoy taking care of people. And, and so it, it's one of those different things. Like if you could just kind of jump <laughs> to, yes. to head, right? Yes, exactly. It's, yeah. I love taking care of patients now. I love my job. I would do it all over again. I think I have a, a feel that fits my interests and everything like that. But I think a lot of people may not be able to say that. I think there's ideas that we have that can maybe make life a little bit better too. Yeah. So. Well, um, before we do that, let's just talk briefly about the, you know, you had the list of things that discourage doctors. So why don't you talk a little bit about things like complicated technology or um, insecurity among medical staff, pay and job security, and like what the stressors that, that affect doctors that really, that really make it difficult to want to continue and be, and you know, who would answer, Hey, yeah, I'd love to be a doctor again. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, interaction. We, be, we became doctors. I became a doctor to take care of patients. I love talking to my patients. I know a lot of them very well. And you want that face-to-face time with your patients overall. Unfortunately, with a lot of technology and the way things are run, that, that time you get is almost a fraction of what it should be maybe a quarter of what it should be overall. So I think the electronic medical record, even though it's very useful for certain things, such as, you know, communicating different things to other doctors, it can wreak havoc. You know, you have a computer screen in front of you when you're talking to patients. You wish you could sit down and just chat with them for a while um, and learn more and listen a lot more. But unfortunately, with those burns, it can make it a little bit difficult. Yeah, and I... And when, you know, reading this book and the paper that you wrote, it, what's interesting is that it's been eight years mm-hmm. since you wrote that. Most of the things are pretty pertinent. I mean, outside of the fact that people are debating these laws, the, yeah. the Affordable Care Act, all the, all the issues that they're addressing, the try, things they're trying to solve are still exactly the same now, right? In fact, if anything, they're on steroids now in some respects, it's actually, right? Actually, all the things that we talked about there and then the book were actually amplified now, whether it's simplifying costs, making transparency to cost, 
whether it's increasing rules in patient cell through HSAs, whether it's tort reform, whether it's insurance reform. Right. A lot of those things are still all at play. And like you said, costs have gone up even since 2008 with all these, um, despite a lot of the good intentions there. Right. Well, and you know, at some level, you just have to say, well, I don't care what your intentions are because the the results are what matter, right? If you can have policy, if it doesn't work or you get the wrong thing. So when it came to that, the time you wrote the letter, because you're like, you know, we have a lot of people debating this law. And if you're anyone who's around the legislature's they have a, you know, their knowledge is about an inch deep and a mile wide, right? Mm-hmm. And, that, and and you'd ex- and it's not fair to expect them to know everything about policy because you can't know everything about everything. Yep. And and uh, I don't want to say much more about legislators except we'll just leave it at that. But yeah. uh, so and 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 people always say, well, they've got you know experts in their office. Most of those experts are kids who are 24 years old who have a poli sci degree. They're yes. not like experts yep. in anything. Maybe good fundraisers or something. There are couple, occasional people who work in the health policy committees and things like that. They might actually have some knowledge. But even that, they are not you know, super duper deep in knowledge, right? Exactly. And so, uh, so our expectations for legislators are maybe unfair. Yep. Uh, but they're the ones in charge. And so they're the ones you're, those are the ones you're writing to. Yes. Um, so what do, you, what do you say to them? Like, how do you, what are your solutions for this, this problem? Because, you know, we've got all these problems in healthcare. Yep. I mean, what do you do about it? Yeah, I mean, I think overall, I mean, I think the impetus from my original letter that I, that I wrote in, in the book, you know, I mean, I think if we had a committee, we actually have a, a it's called an RVU committee now. There's about 31 physicians who debate value <laughs> overall. And if we could somehow bring a committee of diversified doctors around the nation, different regions together with legislators for doctors who are actually practicing medicine, and we had debates about different things like that, it would come a long way. In terms of specific solutions, uh, there's a few things that I, that I wrote in my book that still are very applicable and I still hold. And I think the main one revolves around an idea of moral hazard in medicine. So when you have someone, when, when, when the purchaser is different than the consumer, this healthcare is the only field where that's different. If you call up a plumber and ask him to fix your faucet, right. it might cost $200, for example. You pay $200. If you go to the store and Trader Joe's has bananas on sale for $0.40, cents, Myers for $0.60, cents, you can choose. In medicine, these costs are, are all over the map. Charges are different than payments, and patients get bills of thousands of dollars, and they just kind of go up into thin air. It's kind of like having a credit card with no limit. They can, you know, if they if they if their knee hurts and they want to order an MRI, the MRI can be ordered. And there's no there's no um, consequence to any cost there. So when you have this increased cost, prices go up, and if you don't really know what you're spending your money on, you can never fix the underlying problem. Yeah. So the, I think the first part of it deals with transparency and simplifying costs making it very clear, you know, there's a facility fee in medicine, there's a professional fee. Back to the Obama quote about the vascular surgeon making $50,000. If you went back and show what the physician actually got, just like a plumber or anybody else, patients could then compare prices, shop, increase competition, which could lower costs overall. So I think simplifying those costs on paper when people get those bills and higher transparency is one is the first step towards helping this problem overall. Sure. Yeah. I mean, if you don't have people who have any idea what the costs are, and that goes for both the, the person providing the care and the person who's actually getting the care, right? I mean, yep. uh, and I think that, and we've talked a number of times in this show about third-party payer system where you have essentially 
the, the patient is the customer yet. They're not really the customer. They're yes. the product. Right. Yes. And so it's sort of like, um, it's social media with Google, right? Yep. Google, everything's free. If everything's free, then that means you're the product, yep. right? Like there's you're you are what Google is selling to their advertisers. And in this case, the insurance company is like selling this to, you know, whoever, right? Yes. Like, yeah. Right. Yes. And so, um, and so how do you, how do you fix that problem? Because you, we have HSAs and, yep. and for people who are familiar with that, that about what, maybe 5% of the country uses HSAs, I believe mm-hmm. maybe 10 now. Uh, so it's a small market, but it's something. And so people have some sort of reason to, to price comparison and shop, mm-hmm. but that still leaves 90% of people, especially people with Medicare, Medicaid, uh, you know, government payers, mm-hmm. they have no interest in costs and they don't, they don't care. Yep. Uh, so, I mean, how do you, even if you had all the prices posted, it's not going to radically change things, right? I mean, cause you're going to have people who have the, the prices could be just as ridiculous as the ones that, yep. you know, in the Obamacare, you know, Obama's example about yep. the vascular surgeon. So I think that's why you need fundamental change here. I think, you know, Medicare for all would probably have similar problems with cost because there's still like that unlimited credit card. If you go in, your knee hurts after a jog, there's no, quote, penalty to get an MRI versus just taking some pain medicines. So I think increasing the patient's role in healthcare is the key. I think if you expand HSAs even more dramatically, employers can contribute, you can share your HSA accounts with families, and you can actually pass it down to your family You know, after death. Those kind of things may lead to more fundamental change. And I bring that up because end of life is another big issue in medicine. You know, it has been brought up in this healthcare debate in the past, you know, death panels and such like that. And right. Everyone in America, we all want everyone to live a good quality as long a life as possible. But you can't pay for everything overall, no matter what. So patients who are terminally ill in the ICU, it costs $10,000 a day, for example. In America, if we have a drug that fixes hepatitis C 97% of the time, it might cost $1,000 per pill per day. So the question is, how do you, what's enough? Would... You know, paying um, $100,000 to prolong someone's life by two months. Would America want that, for example? So I think you need a standard, whether that's a group of um, citizens in America deciding on what value to place on certain medical interventions, or whatever that is, I think you need a committee of some sort looking into that. Um, and I think when you have that kind of an idea with HSA accounts that are more flexible, patients taking a bigger role in their health care, you can address not only what's going on um, on a day-to-day life, but also end-of-life issues as well. End-of-life issues account for, so we spend half of our health care dollars in the last year of our, of our life. And so addressing those issues and coming up with a comprehensive solution I think would be a, a, a second big step forward overall too. Yeah. I always, it, the, the stumbling block of course is you don't always know what end of life is. Right. We, right. You can look back and say, boy, we spent a lot of money in this last year, but sometimes people recover from that stroke. They get home and they get yep. out of the, nur- the nursing facility and they live, you know, five, 10 more years. I mean, it, it happens. Right. And yep. so it's always, it, it is a, it's difficult to know when that, when you're there, right. It's uh it's sort of like statistics, right? Like, you mm-hmm. know, if something might happen to you. Well, it's zero or hundred percent. It's yep. really like a, for a population wide, it's 70%. But yep. for you, it's either zero or 100. We just don't yep. know which it is. And so I think there's more clear things, you know, such as terminal illness and things like that. I think we spend a lot of time, yeah. you know, if someone's terminally ill, they will come back to the hospital and they'll, you know, they'll spend several days in the ICU. And I think there's certain things that we can talk to patients about 
and increase that communication. Doctors, I think, do need to do better on communicating some of the um, medical issues, especially near end of life. And I think if we work on that, that could go a long way as well. So outside of transparency, what are some other things that you think would help with this whole process? So transparency, I think what gets covered too. So I'm in, in my practice, we spend a lot of time on what studies, like you know, radiology studies, get covered. So Medicare covers X amount in different insurers, let's say it's Aetna or Blue Cross or whatever, they have different coverage structures. And we spend a lot of time from the insurance side to our side on prior offs. There's a million prior offs, you know, a day being done, which is basically a request to have a procedure done um, um, that's not currently covered. And I think if we had a committee, again, of people who are able to determine to have a, with no disparity of insurance, if they, if they covered as if Medicare was, that was there, I think you could lower costs in that way based on cutting down on unneeded expenses. So I think that's another big issue as well to address. Do you think that's something that people would be comfortable with? Because, you know, that's, that is like the classic death panel, right? And people say, well, you know, you're, you're leaving in someone else's hands to say, you can't do X, Y, or Z because Oh, no, this wouldn't be, this would be just kind of more routine thing. So for example, let's say you had that hepatitis C pill and it costs a thousand dollars, um, and a drug company was charging that much. Um, and Medicare said, for example, that's too high. You could then get increased competition for that drug. And another co- company would come along and say, look, I can now charge, I can charge $500 a day or $300 a day for that medicine. And I think if you had a panel saying, okay, this definitely benefits patients, and we can do this at a good cost, we can make this covered amongst all insurance companies, and insurance companies would then be required to cover it. I think if you increase that competition and had insurance companies cover that at a lower rate, that could go a long way. Because right now it's different. Aetna might cover different than Medicare, which may be different than Blue Cross. So we spend a lot of our time trying to get um, pills or studies for patients based on their insurance. Do you think... Uh, I mean, I think ultimately a lot of these these solutions are are kind of workarounds because of the fact that we have again we have a separation between who's paying the bill and who's uh-huh. getting the care, right? Mm-hmm. Do you do you think if you had an HSA like if it was 100% HSAs, you would need a lot of these solutions, right? I mean, wouldn't the, the market would demand people would be said, well, I need to know how much this costs. That's so I think I think that's the main driver. I think HSAs like the um, HSAs are, are the fundamental part of this. I think you have to expand it tremendously though. It has to be, you know, funded by employers possibly. It has to be passed down if possible. You have to be able to, you know, allow a higher amount in there overall. I'm not saying that, you know, patients should pay more, but it, but as you increase competition through some of these other methods, um, prices should go down and it could make things a lot better. And it must because we know currently it's not working. Yeah, We currently have a system where you're basically paying more and more and more because it's like a credit card with no limit. I mean, if you if you want an MRI of the knee, you get it for $2,000. If you need this, you get it. It's basically unsustainable. So we need a different solution. And I think the solutions here would not increase disposable income from families because other factors would take hold and lower prices overall through transparency, through HSAs, and through insurance reform overall. And you also talk about the patient's role in their health, right? I mean, so mm-hmm. I think it's it's sort of like, you know, we obviously you have the, you 
as a physician, you have very little control over someone's health. Correct. Right. You just can't, you see them for a moment. You've made a recommendation for medication or dietary change or whatever, but yep. you're, you can't, you have a brief touch to try and change that. It ultimately comes down to the patient, right? Yes. I mean, I think you hear, you hear people say, you know, America is in the middle of the pack for life expectancy, yet we spend the most on healthcare. I think a lot of that is due to a lot of advanced technology that we have. We focus on patients that are already sick instead of prevention. And a lot of it comes down to that overall. We will we'll spend a, a certain pill will make the New England Journal of Medicine if it can prolong life three months. Yeah. And it costs $200,000 to do that, you know? Um, and those are kind of the things that really drive up costs overall. Um, so yeah. I think the, so. the other issue would be tort reform. You know, I think in general, um, defensive medicine does play a role. They estimate, you know, around 50 to $200 billion um, uh, for tort reform issues. So states that have, you know, no caps, you know, the lawyers can try to hit a home run. There's not really a disincentive to sue. And I think states that have caps do a little bit better overall. Lawyers might spend more money trying to defend a case than just settling a case. And as we know, defensive medicine is basically, you know, ordering a test with the fear of being sued. I know ERs, you know, that's a big issue. If you have a, an appendicitis and you feel clinically that it's not, but they end up having appendicitis and you didn't order that CAT scan, you know, you could get sued, for example. So I think over time of the thousands of ERs, for example, across the nation, def defending yourself against the possibility of getting sued also adds another 50 to $200 billion in, in costs overall. So if we had tort reform, I think that would also be a fourth or fifth measure to take. You know, I, we, we talk about all these solutions, and I think they're all, they all make a lot of sense, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but like when the Affordable Care Act was being debated, we had essentially, you know, you said it'd be great if we had a bunch of doctors giving their input. Uh -huh. Well, the legislators say, well, the AMA was there. They represent doctors. They're uh -huh. there the whole time. And they were in favor of this whole thing. They helped mm -hmm. push it through. Yeah. So, I mean, how do you respond to that? Because you, I think you could argue that there wasn't much there that had input from from physicians, right? Yeah, I mean, a lot. I think a lot of the AMA, or they, I don't know if it was a diversified um, doctors who are actually practicing overall. And I think I think one of the main issues with the ACA though was actually some of the mandates passed. I think whenever you have an insurance um, pool, you have to have healthy people paying in. If you don't have healthy people paying into it, with which is the individual mandate, it's going to not work out well. When you look at the exchanges, the Obamacare exchanges, a lot of those patients were very sick, and they used a lot of the resources. In fact, 5% of our sickest patients take up 50% of all health care costs. So I think one of the main flaws um, overall with legislation in the past even five years was, was removing the individual mandate. That was actually the Republicans who did that. I think you need everyone, everyone's skin in the game to make it happen or else you won't have enough money to be able to fund that. So I think the individual mandate should be reinstated. I think the, the penalties were not stiff enough for employers. They could actually pay less of a penalty um, than actually enroll their employees, if they're greater than 50 employees, into the health insurance exchanges. So not having that and not having the mandate were two big issues why it wasn't working out and why costs did go up. 
do you think do you think there's i mean that also creates a moral hazard too you could argue right because now you have insurance companies that are um essentially have no incentive to control costs either right they can charge whatever they want if there's a mandate for you, for you to buy their services so if the, the remedy to that would be well we're going to cap how much insurance companies can charge but you're starting to get a very complicated system right at that point well i think if you start having price controls that will always re- lead to misallocation of resources right. i think you got to use all those points though which start back to transparency Whenever you're able to be more transparent and have more competition, you can lower prices overall. So I think all these things would have to take place. It wouldn't just be a simple thing. You'd have to reinstate the individual mandate, um, increase the penalty, for example, have insurance reform, have tort reform, and really address patients' role in their care to really have a big change. What about technology's role? Because I feel like um, a large driver for burnout for expense and making it difficult for people to be independently employed, or mm-hmm. I should say to have a practice is it, is it like, is a technology aspect of it. The electronic health records, right? Is it, it a huge time suck? Mm-hmm. You can have all the information sometimes easy, easily to sometimes easily accessible, mm-hmm. but oftentimes you just spend a lot of time spinning your wheels and not getting anything. And it actually just wastes time. I had mixed views on that. So I think actually, so the VA system we have, the VA is very good. When I was in residency, we could actually access records from Florida from the VAs using their EMR sure. system. Um, so I think having not having to do duplicate tests, CT scans or MRIs, not having to do that is a huge cost saver overall. So I think the benefit of a very good EMR outweighs the negative effect of having to make all these clicks and things like that. The problem is we just got to continue improving on them overall. I think they have improved from five years ago as well. We just got to reduce those number of clicks and be able to transport, you know, a CT scan from Traverse City down to Grand Rapids without having to repeat that scan. Doing that mechanism of repeating scans over thousands of hospitals in the U.S., generates on average another $100 billion a year in costs. So that's another aspect of, 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 of this. Yeah, and I feel like in many ways the, the health record is not actually designed to be a health record. It's designed for billing purposes and for, and for charge captures for hospital systems. And yep. so uh, if it has that as its primary mission, then it's going to fail in the other missions because it, or at least it'll be not prioritized. Right? I feel yes. like our ESR in general is worse than it was when I started. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Our, our endoscopy templates are pretty good, actually. I think they're, they're, they're better than what they were. I think it redu- you know, any, any written down you know, notes is really bad. You, you can't read doctor's handwriting overall. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that part's really improved a lot. You, know, you can see images now, but I do think the more transfers we have nowadays, I think improving EMR to allow um, those, de- those studies to be transported more easily would help a lot, too, for its cost in the, in the long run even though the upfront cost might be more. And, and if you happen to be a hospital administrator, this would be a great time to go get a step out and get a cup of coffee. You also have to mention your, about the, the role of administration in, uh-huh. in healthcare costs. And, and um, so kind of, t- I guess, talk about that. I mean, we're not gonna, as always, nothing specific here is to any specific hospital system. They tend to all be about the same as mm-hmm. far as the, the way they operate and run. So uh, why don't you talk about your, your views on administration, what they're doing, and sort of the, the utility of a hospital administrator, the, all the people with their MHAs, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I think administrators do, you know, they do a good job. I think their intentions are great. I think it's in, in a more complex environment we have with different payers and different ways around it. I think it can be tough. I think there's often too many cooks in the kitchen at times, though. I think the numbers may be too high. 
I think we can work on that a little bit. And I think we have, you know, we can have more of a clinical doc, you know, their, their role with administrators and more communication there would be good. Um, but I think that's more of a, of a lesser feel. I think the other five points are really a major one there. I think, unfortunately, with more complexity in medicine, with multiple insurances, with prior auths, with expanding sicker patients, you do need more administrators because hospitals are consolidating. You know, there, there's different issues. There's different mandates from Medicare and CMS going on. So you do need more of them. And I think as long as you're increasing that doctor-administrator interaction, I think the better will be. And, uh, and then, you know, when it comes to physicians, we've had shows on this recently, you know, there's employed in... I uh-huh. guess independent, we'll call it. Uh, what's the difference, in your opinion, for, I mean, you're employed. Uh-huh. I'm not, although I'm, I have an exclusive contract with our hospital, like in most anesthesia groups. But mm-hmm. what do you, what are things when you're looking for a job and then if you were to make recommendation for someone coming out looking for a job, like what would you say to them as far as, you know, what to look for as far as employed versus un- unemployed, not unemployed, not employed? Yeah. <laughs> you know? I think it's just personal preference. I think, you know, I like I like taking care of a wide variety of sick patients overall. And in some of the employed jobs, you tend to have sicker patients with quaternary level care. Um, some of the private practice jobs are more bread and butter cases, and you can be more business savvy in your field, and you can actually choose how you want to take care of your patients. There's definitely pros to that. Mm-hmm. The employed model, you know, you have administration, and there's some hurdles there, but you can also have some of the benefits, for example, of having a great EMR. You don't have to worry about some of those business ideas when you're trying to take care of patients and help them out. So I think it's personal preference. What do you think about the autonomy aspect? Because, you know, um, we had the, we've had this discussion with our group, you know, whether you were to say sell to a national organization uh-huh. or, or not. And the, there's the question of autonomy always comes up. And so, you know, what sort of, you know, you can call your own shots or whatever when you're yep. independent. But in some ways, you're not autonomous, right? I mean, you still are, you're still dealing with insurance carriers. You're still dealing with, you know, yep. the hospitals where you work. And there's still all these other rules and things. And, and so what's your, what's your thought of autonomy for docs? Because that's one of the things that the learned helplessness is, right, a huge yes. thing with, with physicians as far as uh, making them despondent and burnout, right? Yes. And so autonomy is a huge part of that, right, if you don't feel like you have any control over anything. Yes. Yeah, I think in terms of the overall, you know, doctor-patient interaction, you want to maximize that overall. I think we have a very good aut- autonomy now, you know, the way things are going. I think there's other factors, though, that are playing in that make it appear less autonomous, like the EMR, like different mandates coming down from CMS, which administrators then have to mandate on their employees as well. So that exists in private practice and in employed models as well. You know, you actually have in in GI, there's a lot of private equity groups trying to buy out private GI groups. Sure, yeah, yeah. And they want to contain, remain, you know, have control of that. And some of the docs in those groups are actually going for it because it makes them it gives them the ability to kind of practice more and and take care of the patients more overall. So I think with all these different changes with mergers and acquisitions and, um, and, you know, different insurance um, carrier changes with um, the way insurances will cover a group of patients versus individual ones. I think all these things uh, play play a big role and um, autonomy, you know, is less and less, no matter if you're in private practice or an employed model, I feel. Yeah. So. No, I think that's probably true. And then finally, uh, you know, one thing that's really changed, I imagine since you were training, probably if you went back and went to your training program again, uh-huh. a huge change is the fact that you have a difference in 
uh, other people who are delivering care, right? You've got nurse practitioners and PAs who are much more prominent now than they yes. were probably 10 years ago. Uh-huh. I think I think there were 100,000 nurse practitioners in t- 2010, uh-huh. and in 2020 there were 290,000. So uh-huh. it was almost a almost 200% increase in yes. the amount of nurse practitioners. And we're seeing that. We're at Partly, I mean, as physicians, you're seeing a lack of ner- bedside nursing. I mean, you can't find nurses to do anything. Yes. Because I think a lot of them have gone for advanced training. But yep. uh, how has that changed your, your job? And do you see that as a threat? I mean, to they're not doing procedures right now, mm-hmm. but they're probably doing some procedures in, in your field, uh, in your specialty a little bit. Yeah, so now they, they're, our, our, our PAs and NPs are great. I mean, they do a lot of the great work. They take care of a lot of our patients in the hospital especially. You know, they do a very good job. Their training is a little bit different. They go through, I think, an additional two-year program. And then they're mentored through a long period of time, and they do an outstanding job. So no, they're they're definitely not a threat. We view them as more of a team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think you know, from a big hospital um, perspective, you know, I think you, the way to control costs may be to ha- hire more APPs, for example, and less physicians as a way to help out. But I think overall, I think it's a moving target. I think there's always going to be a surplus or a demand for APPs, depending on the specialty you're in. I think more recently, there has been more of a surplus of APPs. I think they've had a harder time finding jobs because there's been such an explosion in those programs overall. But I think, you know, in our field, I think it's a very good medium right now. And there's a great working relationship. And um, I think they do a great job. Yeah, so I, I don't see them as a threat. I think it's a, almost a positive in a way. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I know one of the things that I'm I, I'm with the, in the Medi- Michigan State Medical Society, and mm-hmm. you know, one of the huge questions is always scope of practice, right? And mm-hmm. so, what is there's always people battling to have more control or be able to prescribe medications to see patients without any supervision and those sorts of things, yep. basically, and to get your d- doctorate in nursing yes. or in I don't know what I think PAs actually they can get it too as well, but. And then to call yourself doctor. And so like, yep. you know, I mean, that's always one of those challenges, I think, when it comes to for patients. And I think this goes to, to your point about transparency and the fact that we, we don't have a lot of it oftentimes when you come to the hospital. Yes. Yeah, you know, I think I think, you know, they there are different titles and stuff like that. You know, I think there's always going to be a role for physicians and APPs, and I think that's going to evolve over time. You know, will APPs be doing colonoscopies in 10 years? I'm not sure. I think we'll just have to continue to weigh the benefits and costs and training and kind of go from there. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Yeah, well, and I think, you know, part of the part of the problem, well, I shouldn't say problem, but part of this, the difference is that things just become safer as far as our equipment and mm-hmm. whatever. And so you can be less trained and do some things that maybe – 20, 30 years ago would have been seemed crazy. True. Right. Yeah. I mean, there, there are so many surgeries we do now as outpatients. We never would have imagined doing a total knee as an outpatient. Yes. Right. Or lap, laparoscopic cholecystectomy, which now is totally routine. But when I trained, it was like, well, I guess there's some crazy people doing that, but no one's going to really do it as outpatient. And now of course yeah. you do that. And with the things you guys do now in, in GI is really pretty remarkable. I mean, you're like shaving off tumors and doing all kinds of things. Oh, you, yeah. you never would have thought of doing 20 30 years ago. Exactly. And there's stool tests now for colon cancer screening. You know, they're not first line tests. You know, lots evolve over time. And in medicine, you know, we go through a three-year training program also. So there's, you know, you're doing thousands of procedures overall to get trained and there'd have to be a big change overall. But I think that dynamic is always in flux and you're right. We just don't know yet. I think time will tell. Yeah. Well, that's all. And the one thing that's always changing, or I should say it's never changing is that things are always changing. Right? Exactly. Yeah, yep. Right. Yeah. 
Uh, well, Dr. Muller, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. Uh, where would be a good place for people to track things out? Now, obviously, the show link, the, um, the, your book will be linked at the show notes at theparadox.com slash 142, uh, what it's like to become a doctor. And then also have a link to your, your article that sort of launched Yeah, I want to thank Kevin MD. Career. You know, yeah. Kevin MD is a major um, medical blog there. And um, actually, my friend um, Deep Ram- Ramachandran actually posted his on Kadusha's blog originally. It was then picked up by Kevin Foe at Kevin MD. And that's where it really went viral. It went on to The Guardian, Wall Street Journal. <laughs> and I had different interviews overall. So I want to thank, you know, Kevin MD, uh, especially for for that publicity for that. My book, you know, is on Amazon. Um, and um, feel free to email me or whatever anytime. And you on uh, Twitter, you know, social media, LinkedIn or anything like that? Yeah, LinkedIn and Twitter and all that. Yep. Okay. Yep. All right. Well, thanks again for being on the show. And it was nice Thank you very to you. much. Yeah. For doctors, the story has changed. Visit drpodcastnetwork.com slash locum story to see if a locum tenens assignment is right for you. It's here you'll find the unbiased answers you are after. So you can decide if locum tenens is your next chapter. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. Thank you.